0: Welcome to a special edition of Savage Marriage with Phil and Priscilla, and I'm Phil.
1: And I'm Priscilla. You'll be listening to Phil and I read our award-winning book, Savage Marriage, Triumph Over Betrayal and Sexual Addiction.
0: We're releasing the audio version of our book for free, chapter by chapter, every few weeks on this podcast.
1: If you've benefited from our ministry, share this podcast with someone else. You'll be glad you did. And here we go.
0: Chapter 9 Spiritual Fuel.
1: I want all of them to be one with each other, just as I am one with you, and you are one with me. I also want them to be one with us. Then the people of this world will believe that you sent me. John 17 21.
0: Spiritual intimacy is the fuel, emotional intimacy is the gauge, and physical intimacy is the expression of both. Phil and Priscilla Fretwell.
1: I sat on the stairs lacing my shoes for the morning walk when I heard Phil walk in.
0: Hey, Priscilla, are you ready to go?
1: Sure, just a minute. Even before coming clean, we had started most mornings cycling, running, or walking around our neighborhood. We had always heard that emotional intimacy was the glue of the marriage. And we thought our morning routine would give us a chance to discuss our day ahead, our kids, and our feelings. We even had regular date nights thinking they would make our marriage bulletproof. But our relationship had still felt mediocre. Not bad, but not remarkable. Based on my interactions with other women, they experienced the same feelings. So I thought this was just what most good Christian wives could expect. When Phil had disclosed his double life and our marriage had crumbled, there seemed to be nothing left, no matter how well-intentioned we'd been to create emotional intimacy. Our efforts hadn't provided the fuel we needed to save our marriage. Even though magazines and self-help books proclaimed that emotional and sexual intimacy were the keys to a good marriage, they were powerless in the face of the real problems. In the months that followed our repentance from infidelity, apathy, pride, and the like, God showed us what was missing—spiritual intimacy with Him and each other— We had been like many couples. We knew each other emotionally and sexually, but not spiritually. If someone had asked me to describe my spiritual relationship with Phil, I would have described our religious activities, going to church, attending and teaching Bible studies, and etc. I hadn't understood what spiritual intimacy meant or looked like as a husband and wife. When I attended the Four Days to Hope conference, a key verse came into focus for me i want all of them to be one with each other just as i am one with you and you are one with me i also want them to be one with us then the people of this world will believe that you sent me john 17:21 i saw for the first time that god wanted my horizontal relationship with phil to be the same spiritual intimacy as my vertical relationship with christ i wasn't sure what this meant But the Bible promised that spiritual intimacy with each other would be so amazing that it would cause others to believe in Jesus. In the forefront of my mind, others meant my children. I desperately wanted our children to know Jesus intimately, and I had been concerned that our mess of a marriage was going to turn them off. God's promise in John 17, 21 gave me hope for a better outcome. I had not included daily devotions in my adult life. I sometimes joined small group Bible studies simply to meet other women, and I'd read just enough before each meeting to come across as prepared. But my heart hadn't been in it. Even when we had sporadic family devotions, it had been Phil's idea. He would typically announce to me, hey, we should have some family Bible time with the kids. It's been a while. We gather the kids with their Bibles, sit around the kitchen table, and read a passage. Phil, somewhat preachy, would add insightful teaching points and ask the kids questions to see if they had listened. Then he'd make sure we all saw how the Scripture applied to our lives, and then he'd end the family devotion with prayer. The only thing he hadn't done was collect the offering. I had followed Phil's lead out of sense of duty, believing family devotions were a part of the prescribed homeschool family mantra and important to raising well-rounded children. I had no real desire or delight for God's Word. I had merely been checking off the list of religious things I was supposed to do as a good Christian mother. I got up from the stairs and turned towards Phil. Okay, I'm ready to go. I was looking forward to our time outdoors in the early morning darkness. As we began our walk, Phil started sharing. And again, I felt the newness of his openness with me and having so much to say. The experience was almost like he'd been taken over by an alien. I'd think, what happened to my husband? Where's the real Phil? Our walk consisted of him talking almost nonstop and me listening, trying to piece together what was going on inside him. He had so much to share. What God was showing him, bits and pieces of his past life that I hadn't known, and how we should continue to process our journey with our kids. He would keep talking, and I occasionally ask a question, agree, or simply affirm what he had said. As we made our way back home, Phil would ask, Do you want to pray? In the beginning, I had wanted to remain a silent spectator. I hadn't been so sure about this new Phil and had wanted to wait and see how my relationship with the new Phil would unfold. I'm okay, I typically responded. I'll just pray silently and agree with you. This had been our routine for the first couple of weeks. One morning, I'd gotten up extra early and sat beside Phil at the kitchen table. He had been following a daily Bible reading plan since the beginning of the year, four months before coming clean. As I approached and sat down,
0: Phil looked up. Good morning good morning. I'm reading in 1 Samuel. Want to join me?
1: I found one of the kids' Bibles, opened it to 1 Samuel, and I began to read. For the first time in my life, the Word of God came alive to me. It was remarkable to see His hand, His graciousness, His plan for me in the Old Testament passages. I had never before had that experience. Unlike my childhood and college days, I was not being forced, and I was under no obligation to read the Bible. I just wanted to be part of the changes I was witnessing in Phil's life since he had come clean and given himself fully to Christ three weeks prior. If the Word of God could change Phil from a narcissistic, self-centered, prideful know-it-all into someone who shared his feelings and shortcomings and walked in humility before his family and friends, I wanted to experience that supernatural power. That morning, reading our Bibles together, we shared what we saw in the passages. Not in a preachy way. We simply exposed what we were feeling and hearing from the Holy Spirit. God's Word illuminated our thoughts, and we shared everything He put His finger on. After that, our early mornings together in God's Word sometimes stretched into hours of sharing and discussing, and the Word of God became a delight to me. Phil frequently said our morning sharing was his favorite time of day. We developed true spiritual intimacy with God and with each other as we learned how we saw God and shared what we were hearing from Him, and how He was changing us and helping us process our grief. Every morning we gained more healing of our souls, the most beautiful experiences I have ever had in our
0: marriage. During the first 28 years of our marriage, I had known it was important for Priscilla and me to do spiritual things together, but I had mistakenly thought attending church, joining Bible studies, and having individual quiet times and occasional family devotions would somehow make our marriage radically different. Although these were important activities, they had become part of our religious checklists that created our attitudes of self-righteousness and spiritual pride. When anyone else had shared their struggles, I had told them they needed to do more religious stuff. Then I would succinctly described all the spiritual stuff I was doing. Such conversations had stroked my ego, making me feel smug in my religiosity, but had done little to help the individual. I had been full of self-righteous pride and hypocrisy, as if I had my heart and life perfectly together. In reality, I had been a Pharisee. Full of dead men's bones, Matthew twenty I had been a limited, fallible human being, pursuing my spiritual superiority like I'd pursued my career, with human intellect, vim, and vigor. I had limited my spiritual experiences to what my human talents, abilities, and finesse could produce, rather than what God's supernatural power could work in me. The religious circles I had participated in had always encouraged men to be the spiritual leaders of their families. I had readily embraced this concept since my narcissistic tendencies had caused me to love being the leader and center of attention. I had also rationalized that men were to take the lead in just about everything because the Bible described wives as the weaker vessel, 1 Peter 3.7. But after Priscilla joined me that first morning of Bible reading and sharing, Something fundamental changed in my attitude toward her. I had interpreted weaker vessel to mean spiritually weaker. But that morning with Priscilla, I realized her spiritual insights and words were breathing life into me. God led me to look more closely at 1 Peter 3.7, and I realized what I'd believed about women was not at all true. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. It became clear to me that weaker vessel meant physically weaker, and that I should seek to deeply understand Priscilla and treat her like she was precious, with care, tenderness, and concern. God also wanted me to honor and respect Priscilla as my spiritual equal a fellow heir of the grace of life, honoring God and His intention for our marriage. I wasn't completely sure what the verse would look like in daily life, but I knew I needed the blessing of effective prayers. God also showed me I had failed to understand how Priscilla thought and felt about her life with me and her relationship with God. I realized that 1 Peter 3.7 instructed me to be a student of Priscilla and seek to understand her true thoughts and feelings. As we spent time together each morning, I saw that God's word was the key to opening the thoughts and intentions, Hebrews 4.12, of her heart. And I reveled in sharing with her at a much deeper level than we'd ever had in the past. I was learning how she thought and felt about our life together and her life with God. She saw my enthusiasm to know her deeply and opened up to me like never before. As I affirmed Priscilla spiritually, I saw God doing amazing things through her. I became more open to hearing her opinions and believing God was speaking to me through her. I committed to God and Priscilla to refocus our relationship on spiritual intimacy, the real fuel for marriage. After 28 years of being married, teaching numerous Bible studies, and holding church leadership positions, I had finally discovered the joy of spiritual intimacy with my wife. It felt marvelous. When I embraced Priscilla as a spiritual equal, she blossomed. I could see her spiritual boldness growing and God using her in unimaginable ways in our relationship. For example, God put his finger on something else in my life that had pulled me away from him and my family. My prized possession. Many people have a prized possession that consumes their thoughts and makes them appear significant, important, or admirable. Mine made me feel wonderful and looked something like this. When I'd meet someone, I'd subtly disclose sooner or later how precious my prize possession was to me. I'd even occasionally invite a friend to enjoy my prize possession with me, hoping they too would feel how special it was and maybe envy me. Having breakfast with my friend Jay, whom I'd called from the plane before coming clean, I confessed. I've been thinking about my prized possession, and I believe it's pulling me away from God and my family. He immediately put down his fork and looked me in the eye. Phil, I think you need to sell it and give all the money away. Turn your prized possession into a blessing for someone else. He was blunt, but full of care and concern. I glanced down and asked God to confirm whether Jay's instruction was indeed the right path. I think you're right, I replied slowly, meeting his eyes again. I'm going to sell it. That evening, I told Priscilla I planned to sell my prized possession and give all the money away. Without hesitation, she nodded her agreement. I think that's a good idea. I quickly placed an online ad. Over the next few days, I received a few inquiries, but no sale. One morning, Priscilla walked in.
1: How's the sale of your prized possession going?
0: I've received a couple of calls, but no real bites. God knows I'm going to give the money away. So when he's ready to sell it, I think he'll sell it. Priscilla looked down and thought, rolling her pen against her Bible.
1: Phil, I don't think it takes any faith to wait until your prized possession sells to give your money away. I think you should give your money away first, right now, and then it will sell. That takes faith.
0: Priscilla's thoughts were sometimes very black and white. Coming across like an Old Testament prophet. Prior to coming clean, I would have pushed back by saying I didn't know how much the prize possession would sell for, or it could take months to sell. However, I had learned that God sometimes spoke to me through Priscilla, so I'd better listen. OK, I think you're right. I estimated the proceeds, split that figure in half, and immediately processed online checks to two nonprofit organizations. I looked over at Priscilla. There, it's done. Good. Priscilla and I, in faith, thanked God together for an impending sale. The next day, I sold my prized possession to someone who had not even known I'd listed it for sale. It was a blessing to have sold my prized possession, but the bigger blessing was seeing God affirm how He had used Priscilla to speak to me through the precise timing and means.
1: For Phil to take my advice without arguing was a miracle. Although my suggestion to give away the money and faith before selling made no sense in the natural world, it made complete sense in the spiritual world. He had needed to plant that seed of faith to reap the results, and afterwards he seemed to have a newfound spiritual respect, frequently telling me, You have an anointing. As we grew spiritually with God in each other, Phil and I felt deeply intertwined, as if our innermost beings were operating as one. All our past focus on emotional and sexual intimacy had never brought us this close. We began to understand what God meant about two becoming one, Genesis 2.24 and Mark 10.8. We also began to believe God would show us more amazing things that the natural intellectual mind would struggle to believe. On a Sunday morning after church, as we corralled the girls and headed to our car, I remarked, Well, that was interesting. Phil glanced at me as we walked.
0: What was interesting?
1: The woman who's coming to speak in a few weeks. They say she has a prophetic gift. What do you think about that? Phil arched his eyebrows and rolled his eyes.
0: I don't know what to think. I know the Bible talks about gifts of prophecy, but I've never heard someone described like that.
1: Me either. This is exciting, don't you think? Phil shrugged and murmured something about prophetess and snake oil. Typical Phil. Trained as an auditor and thereby groomed to be skeptical. Always looking for the fraud and the lies. I relied more on my intuition and feelings. God had been showing me spiritual truth that sometimes contradicted natural human logic. For the next few weeks, as I heard the repeated announcement about the upcoming guest speaker, I was filled with the expectation that something was going to happen. I was going to be a part of it. I didn't know what, but I was ready to receive whatever God had for me. The Sunday finally arrived, and I woke that morning with a spirit of expectancy. Phil was out of town, so the girls and I went to church without him. I thought there might be a big crowd, so we arrived early. I checked the girls into their programs and headed to the sanctuary, where I was greeted at the doors by ushers. To my surprise, the sanctuary was mostly empty. Wow, I must be really early. Where is everybody? I picked a seat about midway down the center aisle and was about to sit when an usher walked up and motioned toward the stage and asked, Why don't you move closer to the front? I glanced at the stage and replied, Why does it matter where I sit? And he pointed to the front and said, Because you'll experience more of the anointing up there. After what I've been through the past six months, if that's where the anointing will be, that's where I want to be. OK. I can't argue with that. I moved to the sixth row and took the first seat beside the center aisle. People filtered in and slowly filled the sanctuary as the usual welcome video played with this five-minute countdown. The worship team took the stage as I eagerly anticipated what was ahead. Finally, the moment I'd been waiting for arrived. Our pastor introduced the special speaker who walked toward the front, but not onto the stage. She stood on the floor where everyone was seated and asked for instrumental music. Then she headed back down the aisle, right past me. Her long black sweater over her pants and blouse flowed as she walked. About halfway down the aisle, she turned around and passed me again. Her soft, calm voice speaking encouraging words to the group, sharing thoughts about God and what He was doing. Before reaching the stage, she turned back again paced down the center aisle, and stopped right beside me. Turning to me, she rested her hand on my shoulder and met my eyes. She spoke directly to me through her microphone, allowing the entire congregation to hear. She's talking to me? Although I had anticipated something would happen, I was honestly shocked that she'd chosen to speak to me out of the almost full sanctuary and no one in my family was there to witness it. Phil, you should be here to help me remember what she's saying. Her words were soft and comforting. I was looking directly at her to let her know I was receiving what she was saying. She spoke for only a brief time, but one phrase stopped my heart as she said, You will fight valiantly like Deborah to see the goodness of God restored in your family's lives. I was stunned. Because those were the exact words I had written six months prior in my identity statement at Four Days to Hope Retreat. I had framed those very words and hung my statement on her kitchen wall, but I had never made the statement public. How could she have possibly known the exact words I'd written referencing Deborah? Deborah's story is an obscure Bible passage, and God had privately impressed me to write the battle statement. Now here was a woman I'd never met or talked with who'd just spoken the very words I'd written, Oh, how my Heavenly Father knows and loves me so intimately, that He would again confirm His words to me. The speaker lifted her hand from my shoulder and continued walking back and forth, but my mind remained on what she had said. Through the ministry of a stranger in front of the whole church, God had encouraged me by putting an exclamation point on what he had told me six months earlier. His battle plan for me. Indeed, I was a warrior, just like Deborah. I was fighting valiantly for my family's restoration. I had just experienced a supernatural encounter with God that blew me away. I couldn't wait to tell Phil.
0: Can you say that again? I said to Priscilla, not sure I completely understood what she'd just shared with me.
1: She told me what I'd written on my identity statement. You know, the part about fighting valiantly like Deborah.
0: Priscilla had waited to share her experience with me until I'd returned from my business trip. She'd said over the phone that she wanted to see my expression when she shared what had happened five days earlier. Her excitement convinced me that she had indeed had an encounter with God. And her testimony made me reevaluate my previous doubts about the speaker. Priscilla, that's amazing. I don't really know what to think. I've had God in a theological box my entire life, and now he's thrusting his arms right through the walls of the box and waving them in front of me. Experiencing prophecy was new for us. I'd always questioned such incidents, thinking some shyster was fooling a bunch of people into believing something that didn't make logical sense. I generally struggled when it came to believing things I couldn't understand intellectually. But as Priscilla and I continued developing our spiritual intimacy and seeing more God instances in our life, I let go of my natural human logic to have my spiritual eyes and ears open. Another example was the dreams Priscilla used to have of my infidelity. I had never considered that the Holy Spirit was possibly disclosing the truth to her. I had brushed her dreams aside, believing she was just living in fear and insecurity about our relationship that consequently disturbed her sleep. Once I came clean, her dreams stopped. Until a particular business trip. Two male colleagues and I had an important meeting scheduled with a female executive in a foreign country. Upon our arrival, she greeted us warmly, not only with traditional air kisses, but also with tight, lingering embraces. As she hugged us, I knew her greeting was intended simply as a welcome. But my mind raced with other thoughts, provoked by her appealing look and close contact. She was wearing a fitted outfit showing her trim athletic build. After our meeting, I took a late afternoon flight to another destination, preparing to return home the next morning. I arrived at my hotel around midnight, and my mind returned to the memories from earlier in the day threatening to turn into fantasy. I called Priscilla the next morning. Although it was six o'clock, I knew she would be up. We had established a pattern of rising early to pray and read our Bibles together. She picked up quickly. Hi, Phil. Hi. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. The words had slowly rolled off as though she had something else to say.
1: How are you doing?
0: I'm doing okay, but something happened yesterday that I want to share with you.
1: That's good, because I had a dream about you last night.
0: Oh, what was it about?
1: No, you go first.
0: I paused, collecting my thoughts, thinking through the details I could provide so Priscilla's imagination wouldn't take off running before I could explain. Then I dove in. I told her not only about the woman's embrace, but how her physical contact had made me feel, including the desires that had crept in my mind. So... That's what happened, I concluded. You know, secrecy creates fertile ground in my imagination, but once I decided to call you this morning, the hold of my thoughts just let go.
1: That's very interesting. My dream was about your experience. It had all the same elements, an attractive woman, you staring at her body, and her confirming that you two were only friends, and that her close contact with you meant nothing to her.
0: Priscilla then provided more details of her dream, eerily consistent with my experience. Priscilla, do you remember all those dreams you had about me before I came clean that caused you to wake up agitated, wondering what was going on with me? Yeah, I do. Aside from last night, have you had any more of those dreams?
1: Nothing significant. This is the first one.
0: Okay, so you were having those dreams on and off for 20-plus years, And after I came clean, they stopped, right? Yes, that's right. And now, six months after I came clean, and at the same time something's happening with me, you had another dream. Right. I pondered Priscilla's words and thought, is this really how spiritually connected we are as husband and wife? I briefly contemplated what such a connection meant and realized I can't do anything without Priscilla knowing about it. I was incredulous. We are really one flesh, experiencing intimacy that's more than sexual and emotional. It's spiritual intimacy. Priscilla and I marveled at how God had revealed truth to her that she could not have known in the natural realm. The Holy Spirit had repeatedly shown her truth in dreams through the years, which now emphasized His power available inside us. I reflected on the Apostle Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1 19 20. I want you to know about the great and mighty power that God has for us followers. It is the same wonderful power he used when he raised Christ from death and let him sit at his right side in heaven. In the past, I had thought the Holy Spirit worked primarily in my mind through my academic approach to discovering God's promises. However, I was seeing something greater and spiritually intimate. Can it be that the power of the Holy Spirit can be sensed in more than just my mind? When I had received Jesus Christ into my life at 21, I had known it was God's power that saved me. Like electricity turns on a light bulb, God's power had turned on my spirit and made me spiritually alive. Now I was considering that God's supernatural power did more than just make my spirit alive. Can His power also affect my entire person, spirit, soul, and body? Intellectually, I knew the answer, but experientially, I had understood God's power only as a somewhat distant helper to my natural intellectual strengths and emotional zeal. Have I confused the power of God with my natural power? I had taught the Bible for over 30 years, but I had very few experiences I would call supernatural. Until now, Priscilla and I were encountering situations that had no earthly explanation, and I became convinced that the Holy Spirit wanted to be more than a distant helper. He wanted to lead my spirit and transform my soul and body.
1: As the months went by, I felt God healing and restoring our broken marriage. Phil and I were enjoying each other in a new way, and I believed our deeper connection resulted from us engaging spiritually. With the Holy Spirit as our guide, we had made it through a wall in our marriage and cherished our mornings together as we included God, discussed His Word, and enjoyed His presence. We began to see what He, the living Word, was doing inside of us. In the past, our home Bible studies had meant a carefully crafted, scheduled Bible time of teaching, with Phil in charge, followed by prayer. Now our mornings together were completely unscripted, and I had just as much to say as Phil. The spiritual intimacy I enjoyed with God and Phil was a time of further healing and restoring in our marriage. Although we still experienced our ups and downs, I was full of hope. Also due to spiritual intimacy, Phil and I resolved our day-to-day conflicts much faster than in the past. The whole experience of us each coming clean had allowed me to see my sin before a holy God, which positioned my heart and mind to surrender everything to Him. God had given me a new identity, rooted and formed by who He said I was as His child. Described in His Word, I saw more fully how He had designed me as an individual with purpose. Like Eve, I was constructed out of bone— and made strong spiritually, emotionally, and mentally by my Creator. My trust was completely in Him. About a year after coming clean, Phil and I began receiving opportunities to share our savage marriage story with others. Although we had shared our story many times with individuals, sharing in front of groups was an entirely different situation for me. I'd always feared speaking to groups and taking the lead in anything including praying in a group setting. Being in front had always been Phil's job. He loved to be the center of attention, not me. I was in third grade when I got my first ever speaking part. It was for a Christmas production at church. Never before had I been in front of an audience, but I worked on my lines practicing to say the few sentences without stumbling. When the day of the Christmas performance arrived, I walked onto the stage with another little girl and I looked at the congregation and completely froze. I couldn't remember a single word. The other girl had said her lines, and it was my turn. Silence. She waited, then nudged me with her elbow, but I was looking at the audience like a deer in headlights, terrified, unable to speak. She whispered to me, Your turn. No, I whispered. It's your turn. You go. She gave me a puzzled look, as if to say, What are you talking about? Still, I stood there, unable to remember the script. Thank God she had memorized my lines, too, and went on to recite the whole thing. As I stood in terrified silence beside her, fear told me, You're incapable and stupid. With the entire audience staring at me, I felt so humiliated. That incident was the moment the enemy of my soul took my voice from me, and his taunts were all I heard. Don't ever speak again in front of groups. You have nothing worthy to say. Stay silent. I shook hands with that lie, and I agreed to never again speak in front of a group. Even later in high school and college, I did everything possible to get out of speaking to an audience In a few unavoidable times, I felt like a complete failure and an embarrassment to myself. About a year after Phil came clean was my first opportunity to share our story with a group. Paul and Jenny Speed, founders of Whatever It Takes Ministries, asked us to serve as coaches at a weekend marriage intensive. Only six months earlier, we had attended the same marriage intensive as participants, listening to table coaches give their testimony. Asked to serve as a table coach, I felt completely inadequate. Phil and I had just come through our living hell and had walked through the valley of the shadow of death, but Paul and Jenny encouraged us, pointing to the work God had done in our marriage. They said we were credible messengers, and we agreed to serve. At the retreat, as the time approached for us to share, Paul said to me, You're on after the next breakout session. I was no longer ruled by fear because God had done so much in me, including giving me a new boldness. I had a story to share of His work in my life. Christ, my King and friend, would speak through me. I would not be silent. I would set a trumpet to my mouth and testify of His work, His goodness, and the restoration He had made in my life. As Paul kicked off the session, Phil and I stood behind one of the banners at the front of the room, and I prayed, Lord, help me. I can't do this without you. I need you. Speak through me. Thank you for your peace and calmness, and most of all, your presence. I thought of the verse on the back of my t-shirt, Revelation twelve eleven. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. Phil and I walked to the podium and began to share. I can't recall exactly what I said, but I remember telling my story and feeling God's hand of peace on me as I spoke about what He had done in my heart and life. I felt His joy come over me, and I was ecstatic in His love. Over and over in my life, speaking in front of groups had been a battle I'd lost. But not this time. I felt like a victorious warrior, like Deborah, like Deborah. God had returned to me what the enemy had long before stolen, my voice. Using my voice was an amazing, glorious experience, walking through a battle on the winning side with Jesus, God's side.
0: Seeing Priscilla talk in front of groups was amazing. Even more amazing was how in tune she seemed to be with the Holy Spirit. God opened up more opportunities for us to share with people who were struggling in their marriages. He also gave us insight into their problems, which allowed us to speak to their hearts. We encountered some situations where God told us things we had no human way of knowing. One day, my friend John shared with me that his marriage was in trouble and heading toward divorce. John, what's the root problem? I can't tell you, he shook his head, his eyes tinged with fear. If it got out, it would be devastating to our family. My thoughts immediately went to my sin and its gripping fear. John had paused, but then continued. It would really blow things up. I just can't say, but let me tell you, it's really bad. I tried to assure John with truth. God can rescue your marriage, John, out of the deepest pit no matter what it is. When I got home, I told Priscilla about the conversation and that John was too fearful to disclose the real issue. What do you think about that? I asked. Priscilla was busy in the kitchen and said nothing, but I could see she was contemplating John's circumstance. After a couple of minutes, she looked up and said what she believed John was thinking, and she went on to describe his fear. Wow, I replied. Do you really think that's the issue? I would have never thought of that. Yes, that's it. I'm sure of it. I called John the next day. After brief chit-chat to learn how he was doing, I cautiously said, John, you know how you said you couldn't disclose the real issue to me? Yeah, that's right. Do you believe... And then I repeated Priscilla's thoughts. John exclaimed, Who told you that? No one knows that. Well, Priscilla told me. Who's she been talking to? Priscilla talks to God. She sometimes knows things from him that she wouldn't otherwise know. That may sound weird, but it's not the first time. I realized I had dropped a lot on John, but that was the truth. After a short pause, John continued, Well, she can't tell anyone. Okay, I assured him. As I shared with Priscilla what John had said, she didn't appear surprised but I was astounded at what the Holy Spirit had shown her. Indeed, Priscilla was hearing truth from the Holy Spirit, which encouraged me to listen to what she had to say.
1: Today, whenever Phil and I describe what happened in our life, many listeners ask how they too can experience this type of grace. We wish we had a formula, but there isn't one. We can't tell you how to become broken over your sin, but we can tell you how to position yourself to receive brokenness and grace from the Father. Through humility. Humility will always point you towards being hot, honest, open, and transparent. Removing your mask, allowing others to see you as God sees you. Open and laid bare. Hebrews 4.13. Humble and hot is where God will help you experience spiritual intimacy with Him and your spouse. In the years after coming clean, our spiritual intimacy deepened to an entirely different levels of faith, trust, hope, insight, and all. Our relationship felt more whole and complete than we had imagined possible, and God had more abundance
0: in store for us. Savage Questions for Reflection Number 1. How satisfied are you and your spouse with your spiritual intimacy, both with God and each other?
1: Number two, what obstacles are you encountering towards spending more time together with God? Consider practical obstacles such as time, spiritual obstacles such as pride, emotional obstacles such as past wounds, lies you believed in your family background.
0: Number three, what steps are you willing to take to create more spiritual intimacy in your marriage? This is Phil and Priscilla Fretwell. Thanks for listening. Our book, Savage Marriage Triumph Over Betrayal and Sexual Addiction, is now available on Amazon.
1: Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Savage Marriage Ministries. Also, join our Savage Marriage community at SavageMarriageMinistries.com.
0: And remember, it's God who is at work in your savage adventure.